Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. My guest today is, uh, hey, it's real possible that you don't, you don't know him yet. And it's rare that I have somebody this young on the podcast. But the music that this man makes uh, has made it worthwhile for me to get to know him and to have him on the pod. So my guest today is BJ Barham, who is the songwriter, singer, um, and uh, I mean, it basically is the band um, American Aquarium. And uh, they made an album this year that, uh, or I guess 2018, but I still consider it like this year, over the last 12 or 15 months, that's just one of my absolute favorite albums of the last long while. And um, I was a fan before that, and BJ and I started communicating online, and um, I was just so happy, man, that you actually knocked this one out of the park. Well, me too. <laughs> after after years of uh, of making a little bit of contact and watching it foul off, it was nice to to watch something hit the sweet spot and actually get up and sail away. You know, it was. We felt really good about this record. We we knew when we left the studio, they're like, "Wow, this is this is better than anything we've ever done. This might have a chance of actually like hitting people." Well, you know, I, in, in the past, and I, I have a lot of questions about this, but I mean, there were always songs on these records that clearly demonstrated your promise as an artist, like. You know, losing side of twenty five, uh, man. I'm supposed to be the, there. There were songs that were very clear indicators of you wanting to play in the major leagues. But then I would go and listen to the albums. And it's like these were bad albums. They were very fucking good albums. I, I know exactly what you mean. They were very good albums. As uh, a writer, I feel that way. I feel like my entire career has been like there's three or four songs off each record that are like, wow, that's a that's great. But then as a whole, it just kind of fell short of what people. I'd always hear, man, if you could just write like four more of those and put them on the same record. I remember when I first heard Jacksonville and Losing Side of 25. Those two songs were probably the first two songs of yours. And we still I, play those every single right. night. Like. Those are probably uh, <laughs> the first two songs of yours that I noticed. And um, I remember thinking, well, this is a. It's, it's funny, a, a general manager of uh, 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 a basketball team was talking to me about this guy in the Knicks. and. Uh, Kevin Knox, and we were wondering whether Kevin would end up being a good player. And he said, you know, it's an incredible indication. He he doesn't work for the Knicks. He said, but he's a stats guy. And he said, uh, but if a 19-year-old has even one game in the NBA where he throws up 36 points, if you look at the numbers, that tells you that there's a very good chance he's going to become an all-star. And so for me, when I heard Jacksonville and losing side of 25 on early records of yours, I was like, well, this kid actually has the stuff to be one of the greats Ugh. and will he do but you know then i mean i imagine that comes with pressure though well, of man. course it does you know you, you know you prove to yourself with those kind of songs that like you can do it like you're like wow it's in me i i i just got to figure out how to to filter more to where it's more concentrated you know and 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 get an album with seven or eight of those on it instead of just the two or three because i can go back in my career you know we've released seven records now and every night we still play it, two or three songs of all their previous records. Yes. The, you know, what you would consider the, the cream of the crop of the records. And then the later in my career I get, I'm playing four or five off of a record. And then when things change, we play, you know, seven or eight songs a night off of that well, record. Well, I mean, I just will say this. And, and look, my audience knows that I don't fake the funk and talk about this stuff. I don't mean it. Like, every song on the album is great. I was so happy when I heard this album. I mean, I listened to it all last summer. And... I mean, I was just listening to it every day because boom, 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 like one after another. And it's thematically 
unified. It's it's linked. There are these sort of little movements within the album of stories connecting, and it it really tells the story of this character who happens to be a lot very similar to you. Very much so. It was it was the first time where I actually had a an entire body of work that at the end of the day was all they could stand up by their own, but together you could tell that they were all very much a part really, of something. I mean you, th- that run of that run the the song about your friends into the song about drinking it's like you're you're really bringing us you know you're starting in a place of sort of the way you see the world and you go into how you grew up and you go into losing the band stopping drinking and then recovering through just doing this work and it's all there in this for sure you know the record's called things change and i think that i touch on every possible thing that has changed for me in the last five years and I think that's why people related to it so much. Because yeah, I'm writing from a character's point of view, but like you said, that character <laughs> is 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 the best version of me that I like to see. Uh, and so it's you know, and this was one of the first records where I stared myself in the mirror, and like even if I didn't like what I saw, looking back at me, I wrote about it. I love that you said they're the best part of you because this is the thing that artists, all of us, have the capacity to generate this version of ourselves that's like uh, almost calling to ourselves to live up to to the idea that we put in the in the work. Oh, for sure. Oh, 100%. And, and so a song like When We Were Younger Men, I'm, I'm, I, you know, you hear that song and you hear a very a, a man who's mature about this, who's who's gotten to the place of forgiveness and ready to reconcile someday. But then if I ask you about it, you're like, well, I may never talk to those fuckers again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. It's, so it's, that's... I, 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 <laughs> I've written plenty of those songs. You know, when it comes to writing a song that is about a relationship, whether it be a, a, a romantic relationship or a friendship yeah. breaking, I've learned to sit on that for a while. Cause I've, I've wrote like the first thing that comes to mind and put it out before. Either just the angry, bitter, horrible, just the bitter, angry, like, Whoa, that are, do you need help? Like, do you need to talk to somebody? Right. But now I've learned how, you know, instead of writing directly in front of it, I try to wait until I can hover above that situation. And then I write from it as biased as possible. So I try to write from it like when those guys left, of course, it's fuck you. Like I don't I don't ever want to speak to you again. Who the fuck do you think you are? But then after a while, I'm like, well, you know what? I I was an asshole for a, a large portion of our friendship. Like they were totally justified in everything. <laughs> and then th- that's where those kind of that process took me to. But then you get to that point where you're admitting how shitty of a person you are. And then you have to ask like, do I want to let this much out? Do I want to show? Because you expose yourself. You're 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 slowly peeling off a layer. Yeah. But there comes a point, no matter what, where you peel back one too many layers, and you're like, oh, I just I expose myself to the rest of the world. But of course, that's when the world actually turns out to love you. One hundred percent. Weirdly enough. And I've learned that like this record taught me a lot about you know being as honest and transparent with my fan base as possible. Is they're not going to judge me for it. Like they're, they're going to identify. They're going to identify with it. They're going to be like, I thought I was the only person that yeah. felt like this or that. I was talking on a podcast earlier today um, where I was a guest on Danny Shapiro's podcast, this great novelist and memoir writer. And we were talking about, I don't know if you, have you ever read any Emerson, Ralph Emerson? Yeah, um, of course. So one of the things Emerson talks about is like, it the thing you're so scared to admit 
that you're thinking about the world, that you think you're the only one who thinks it and that it's going to sort of put a black mark on you. If you actually say that thing, that's when everybody else raises their hands and we're like, I was waiting for someone to say that. Oh, well, exactly. I felt that way. It's like, I didn't want to be the one that said it, but now that someone said now it. Now that it's out there, like, yes. You're championing this group of people and, yes. and you feel like it's just you or maybe you and somebody else, but then you find out like, Holy shit, half my fan base felt this way. And then you can, None of them were willing to say it. I'm sure you can feel it when they're singing along, too. What, uh, as, as somebody... To the drinking, to two drinking songs. For sure. On like, the record. When you go to a rock and roll show, especially if you're a sober guy like me, I'm getting ready to celebrate five years of sobriety. When when you go to these public events where, where drinking is usually the norm, you feel like you're the only person in that room that's going to be sober. But I talk about it every night on stage. I talk about my sobriety, my recovery... And then after the show, there'll be 20 guys who are like, man, I've got two months. I've got a oh, year. I've awesome. got three years. And they feel like they can't say it. And, and, and hopefully, you know, me saying stuff about it and other writers coming out and talking about how they don't need the substance to be to find the creative. Because that's, that's a common misconception is yes. that, man, I can't be creative unless I'm, you know, fucked up, you know. And don't get me wrong. I've written plenty of my stuff in an altered state. But I find being able to, like, look it straight in the face sober allows me to maneuver well, a lot quicker. You wrote quicker. your best record sober. So, I mean, you just did. And and look, I mean, yes, uh, Jimi Hendrix may have written Are You Experienced Fucked Up, but, you know, he stopped writing songs at a certain <laughs> point. The, the yeah. songs did not continue past the age of 27. Exactly. And I, and I think that's, that's when you're starting your career and you're kind of wide-eyed and, and mystified by rock and roll when you get into it, you feel like, you know, you've seen enough VH1 documentaries. Like, it always has to start... With the booze and the drugs and the girls and the, you know, but then you get to a certain point where you're like, there's a reason most of these dudes either died or broke up before they were 30. If you want any longevity in this game, if you want to make it a career, if you want to live past, you know, you have to stop writing about what a 25 year old wants to hear. You have to start writing about bigger thematic things. Well, yeah. I I was going to say, you know, this album has so much forgiveness and hope and determination on it. And, uh, And there's optimism in this record. Your older records had you cursing at yourself a lot. Yeah. Hating yourself a lot in a very sort of aggressive way. Extremely. (laughs) Where, you know, you were kind of looking at yourself and saying, like, I'm going to lose it. I'm going to find a way to take this package that should win. It's like the inverse of Springsteen. It's like, I'm going to find a way to take this package that could win, and I'm going to lose. Exactly. And, um... But part of that had to do with, like, you, you knew you were talented, as you were saying. You knew you could do it. Jacksonville's a great example of a song where it's like, I'm just going to go out and get fucked up even though I, I shouldn't get fucked oh, up. Oh, I was the king of getting in my own way for, for a decade plus. Right. And But how, what kept you, like, you know, on this podcast a lot, I talk about delusion versus artistic achievement, right? How all of us, before someone else recognizes it, we might just be crazy if we're not really, you know, how do we know? What kept you believing that you'd find a real audience and that you'd get it together and that you had something to say when you know at the same time you were castigating yourself you were pressing on so like what what would happen that made you press on dude? i'm stubborn i refuse like if, if my parents gave me one thing it's it's, it's this inability to quit something once i started I, I see things through um i always my dad always says there's not an ounce of quit in us you know it's 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 something we do um i think i feed artistically creative of people telling me you're never going to be the songwriter that this person is, or you're never going to get to this point. It's almost like 
part of what fuels me isn't just like me wanting to succeed. It's me wanting to watch other people be wrong sometimes. Sure. And, I, and that's a super childish thing to admit, but more often than not, if you get somebody one-on-one without microphones in front of them and you're like, man, what kept you going past that record that like either got panned by critics or your band quit or like, you know, name another negative downfall. They'll tell you, honestly, it's like, I just want to prove people wrong. Right. You know, at a certain point. Yeah, no, when you're young, especially when you're young, I I think, um, as I've said this before, but like the anger stops being that useful as you get older. But when you're young, it's really powerful fuel. It's a fuel. Uh, And and like you said, it has a shelf life. Like it, anger can only be used when you're 20. I think your 20s, your 20s is a great time to take that kind of animosity and And, turn it into rocket fuel. Yeah, it does. It is at that time. I agree with you. And like when you you just brought it up, like why is someone else being considered like so – Jason produced one of your early records. You've known him a long time. Yeah. You respect him as a songwriter and all that. But when he blew up, was that a little bit of a dare to you in a way? Did it? Did you notice it and think, well, I, I should be able to? Well, if you listen to the last couple records I made before sobriety, I was already past the point of admitting I had a problem. Yes. I knew I had a problem. Yes. So there's this part of recovery where you have to, the steps are you have to admit that you have a problem, then you have to resolve the problem, and then you recover from the problem. So for me, that span from admitting I had a problem to actually doing something about said problem was the course of six years. Right. You know, so watching somebody like Jason actually, <coughs> excuse me, watching somebody like Jason admit to the problem, fix the problem, and then find a different level of success. Yes. Was just like, holy shit. Like if my buddy can do this, like I'm at least going to give it a shot. Right. It insp- helped inspire you. You think to, to think you could do it. 100% like watching someone else go down a road yes, that you have thought about going down and come out the other side and be like, oh, wow, this was great. Only makes you want to go down that road again. So as soon as, you know, you got to think, we made that record with Jason in 2012. I'd say six months later he got sober and, you and know. made Southeastern. And then made Southeastern. And as a writer, as a friend, just as a human being watching somebody who lived the exact same life as you did make the 180 and find a relationship and find success and find really and truly his voice. Yes. Don't get me wrong. Jason's another one of those writers that you were talking about earlier. Like you listen to some of those writers. Well, he wrote goddamn lonely love when he was 21 years old. Yeah. Or 22 At, years old. Outfit, or Danko Manuel, you yeah. know, stuff like that. It's you listen to that and you're like, Oh man, there was these flashes of brilliance. And even on the early solo stuff, after he left the truckers, he had these moments of just like, absolute like he's in a class of his own but once and i've equated this in other interviews once he got sober it was like an olympic track runner who has been running his entire career with his shoelaces tied together someone looking and saying have you ever tried running without your shoelaces tied together and then he's like (laughs) oh i've never tried that and then he tried he's like holy shit i am faster than everybody yes like he's and, and, and one thing about Jason is, like, he has not changed as a person. Like, oh, he's, just, a, he's just, a beautiful guy. I'm not, yes. He got rid of all the bad and kept everything that makes him great. Yeah. And, I got I got to know him right as Southeastern was coming out. So I didn't know him really before, but I knew him before um, he could sell a beacon out four nights in a row. For sure. For and sure. Um, you're right. His, he's still – he and Amanda are just beautiful Yeah, people and he's and, one of the funniest, most intellectual guys – and he, he didn't lose any of that quickness, that wit, anything. It just, he became this sharper knife. Yes. It was, it was like, it was. Did you send him the record? Did he hear the record? Yeah, he's, he's, me and him, like he, we went out on the road with him back in September and did a few shows. And 
It's was it, he cool about the record? Was he happy for you? Yeah, for sure. He's he, he's he's been he's always been supportive of this band, even when he probably shouldn't have been. Uh, he's he's always been a great friend of ours. But 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 his I like the idea that you were able to look at that as an example. And I'm sure at first it was like fuck why why can't I do that to myself why can't I get myself together but that you how quickly after that did you get did you so Jason was sober in 2012 I got sober in 2014 right so so shortly thereafter I think I put a, one more record out in between it and then you got yourself together and you can hear you can hear kind of the the evolution of the thought is burn flicker die was this, this kind of 27 28 year old kid just giving up being like you know I tried whatever. And then Wolves came out, and there's this like pre-sobriety kind of fervor. When the live album come out? Right after Wolves. So because the live album, I just want to say this to people, like because the thing you said about playing these old songs, I, I went and listened to the live album. I listened to, I'd say that's the album I listened to the second most. Right? Yeah, I listened to the new record and the live record because the live record has the best of all those other songs and great exactly. versions of them. <laughs> yeah, where you you can really feel you like living in these stories of a guy trying to change. Once I got sober, I realized that I had a chance to, to reach people that I had a chance to like, that I wasn't just like this sixth man that I always thought I was that kind of sitting on the sidelines, watching my friends be famous. It was like, Holy fuck. I can, I can hold my own with some of my friends, you know, some people that I really look up to. And so then that's when like sobriety focused me. Sobriety gave me this like almost hyper awareness of like, I'm going to go out and just punch this in the face. like. And that's what I'm hearing on that live record? Oh, that live record is a year and a half after sobriety, after me being like, there's nothing that can stop me right now. And I don't say that coming from a, an arrogant point of well, view. You or, hear it on the record, dude. I hear it on the record. I mean, that version of Jacksonville, that version of Losing Side of 25. That's, that's, an, that's an artist who is, is fully realizing his capability. Like, for me, it's... The live show is where we excel. The records, don't get me wrong, I love some of our records. But seeing me live, I for 90 minutes, it's like like that scene in Anchorman. It's like, or, or old school, like where he just, he blacks out. He's like, what did what I say? That, that's how you debate, you know? Yeah. Where he just, it, there's there's 90 minutes on stage where I get on stage and there is such a uh, intense moment where it's me and the crowd on this one wavelength riding it together. And then after the show, I get to go back to being just a normal guy and yeah, most live albums suck though. Yeah. I, there's I, a lot of bad ones. I don't really listen to live records. I, I almost, other than there's like one REM live record I like, uh, but yours somehow, I do feel like it's an incredible introduction to the band. Like if I were going to say to someone what to do, I'd say get things changed and get the live record and start there. Yeah. The live record is what I tell people. I'm like, if you want to hear what you're going to get coming to see us at a show, I'm giving you a free taste of it right there. Like, right. It's just going to be another thirty minutes of stuff we cut. <laughs> so, um, you talk a little. You know, the album is so much about the land you came from, the people you came from, for sure. Um, and you know, an America that you see now, obviously, and have some issues with or questions uh, about. But can you talk a little bit about how you grew up and what was expected of you, the kind of life you were expected to lead, how you grew up, where you grew up, the kind of kid you were. I grew up in a lower middle class working family. Uh, I'm from Reedsville, North Carolina. It's uh, right in the middle of tobacco country. So I grew up around agriculture. Um, we lived on, you know, about 100 acres surrounded by tobacco fields. Um, you know, it's... What was on your land? Uh, grass that I had to mow a lot <laughs> right. of. And then literally we had our plot of land and then it was all surrounded by tobacco. 
And so grow from an early age, that's what we did. We helped prime tobacco all the time. That's what your parents did yeah. for a living. They were in my parents did it early on. Um, toward the end, my dad went into auto parts sales and stuff like that. Agriculture took a hit in the nineties in North Carolina. Once people started getting wise about tobacco being dangerous. Uh, but so you were in the fields, tobacco fields. Oh, I, I prime tobacco every summer, uh, growing up. It's, really? it's, it's what I did. It taught me what I didn't want to do. Man, like extreme manual labor out in a hundred degree weather for 12 hours a day. Um, it, it, the one thing I can say is it instilled in me a purpose to not be there. I knew what the bottom ha- could be, and I did not want to be there. That's powerful motivator. It's extremely powerful. And I wish every kid had to go through it for a summer. Like a lot of people are like, I wish every kid had to work retail or had to work in the service industry. I wish every kid had to do backbreaking work for a summer. In the field. In a field. You know, it's you and a bunch of migrant workers. And for 12 hours a day, you were literally, they're half mile rows. And you go to the end of a row and there's a Coca-Cola and a pack of crackers waiting for you. So when you get done with a half a mile of priming tobacco, you have crackers, a Coca-Cola, and then you get back to the other half a mile. And then you get to the end of that, Coca-Cola, crackers, other half mile. And you do it until the sun goes down. And when the sun goes down, that's when you take it to the barn and you start stringing it up. And so you spend another four hours after the sun goes down with just spotlights on you, stringing You it. did that the whole thing, the 14-hour days like that? from the time I was 8 to the time I was 18. Like 12-hour, 14-hour days? Yeah. You're, you're in the field at 5 and you're getting home at 8. And it was great being like an 11-year-old making $5 an hour I thought I was just rolling in it. Were you keeping that dough or sharing oh, it with your family? I was I was keeping that. You were dough. able to keep that. Well, my dough. parents told me early on, it's like uh, if you ever want a car, if you ever want money to have fun with, you have to earn it. Right. You have to like so it got to the point where that didn't really mean anything to an eight year old. But sixteen year old me who wanted to go on a date and have a nice car. You were happy you had that money. When I was I bought my first car when I was fourteen. I bought a seventy nine CJ five Jeep. Me and my dad completely restored it. And so when I turned sixteen, all these other kids had like beat up Hondas. And I had a, I had a pretty nice car that I paid for myself. And so you better believe I was never trying to speed in it. I wasn't trying to wreck it because I knew if anything happened in that car, my parents weren't just going to give me something else. Like I had to pay for anything. So it taught me this sense of responsibility. Seventy nine CJ five stick shift. Stick right? shift. The yeah. big, yeah. The, the stick shift that was all the way on the floor. The all the way on the one. floor. No, 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 nothing on the tree. My favorite anymore. car I ever owned. I I had uh, an eighty five CJ seven. And the extended before yeah. the Wrangler, yeah, you know, so it was uh, standard transmission, stick shift, the the last of the the sort of stick shift that was like a school bus stick shift yeah. on the floor. I, man, it, it was great. It's an amazing car to drive. We, we swapped out the inline six and put a three hundred four AMC in it. Like it was like it was like the most redneck. We jacked it up, put giant tires oh, on I didn't it. Jack, I, I was jack su- mine up. I was such a. I don't know if you can tell by my voice, but I was such a redneck. Like growing up, it was like that's what we did. We had these giant trucks that you could hear from miles away. I'm such a like New York Jew that the only way I know <laughs> the only way I know that like uh, the engine numbers and stuff is because of Springsteen songs. Oh, I, mean, yeah. I don't even. I have no sense of what you just said. It you did other than I know the, what the car looked like. I put when a you si- did it. I took a six cylinder and then yes, I put a V8. In it. Yes, yeah. I know. I do understand <laughs> mostly just from Bruce songs. Though. Oh, of course. And so it was hard work was expected. If you hard work talk ex- about on the record, anything you do, you're expected to work hard. Were you for. an athlete? I was an athlete. What'd you play? I played soccer, basketball, football, and baseball in school, in school, all or? through middle school and high school varsity, varsity, everything. I played all four sports varsity level. And which is hard to do seasonally to do four sports. Well, I was just a kicker for the football team. Right. So, so soccer, soccer was my main sport, but we didn't play soccer on Friday nights and Friday nights is when the football team. So the football team needed a kicker. 
I was a kicker. And you you, you kicked in games? You I kicked in games. Well, I was horrible. I was abs- Did you ever make any? I, I hit a lot. I, I always hit the extra point. I, ne- yeah. I, I, I didn't miss Did extra points. you ever make a field goal? I hit a couple like 30-yard yeah, field goals. Hard. Like It's a hard thing. I'm a decent kicker, and I've tried. It's hard. I was a gr- I was a great soccer player. Uh, I was a, a, a horrible football player. But where I'm from, they they needed anybody that could just put a foot on it. Sure, and I'm sure being able to wear the football uniform wasn't a bad thing for you. It was, it was great. Like on Fridays, you get to walk around and you had your your jersey on, and it was, you know, don't get me wrong, I will never once admit to even being solid football player, but I was on the team. But there you played basketball in the yearbooks yes. to prove it. No, me too, man. I'm, um, I'm a double varsity athlete. I never on the basketball team. We were eighth in the state, so I never played. I was the guy in the basketball. I love basketball. I'm a good basketball player. But we were eighth in the state. Uh, I was the guy that the whole gym would cheer to get in the game. Oh, nice, nice. So I would get my four minutes at the end of the blowout, and everyone would cheer for me to shoot. I that pl- was my sad. I played basketball. Was the one that I loved. Soccer was the one I was good at. Ah. Uh. Um, yeah. But basketball was the one that had my heart. Like I, 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 to this day, college basketball is my favorite thing in the entire world. Which is your team down there? NC State, uh, the right. the lovable loser of North Carolina. Was Valvano alive but, and coaching when you were in high school? They won the national championship in '83. I was born in '84. Ah, so Literally, just, my entire life, I have known nothing but mediocrity and pain and heartache. Come on, you're talking. But about again, a Knicks fan, it teaches an important lesson. It teaches. It builds character. It teaches you to appreciate those small victories. Sure, you know it's anytime. Anytime state just goes to the dance, I'm like elated. So when when this is happening, uh, so like I had this moment, my junior year, I made the varsity basketball team, which was very important to me, and then I got picked to direct. Um, we had a, a play at my high school every year that was the junior musical, so the junior class and and. Uh, the faculty would pick a kid who's who got to run the play, who got to direct it and cast it and put the whole thing together. And I got picked to do it. And I had just made varsity, which I always had wanted my whole life to play varsity basketball. And I had to choose because they said you can't. I wasn't a good enough student. And they said you can't do both. And I picked the play, you know, yeah. which I was surprised myself by picking the play, actually, you know. And I, at the time, I had no thought that this is what I would do with my life. Obviously, now it makes a lot of sense that I chose to yeah. direct the play. So, but for you, it's funny you mention that because I almost went to school for musical theater. Like I was the theater nerd. All like I did, I was student body president. I did all the sports. I did choir. I did drama. I did everything. Were you playing guitar? I, was, I, I wasn't playing guitar yet. So you were not. This is what I want to ask. So you're you're a jock at school. You're popular because you're running your class president. You could sing, so you were in musical theater. Yeah. How did rock and roll get into your life? What happened? Music's always been important. My father, we, we were raised in the church, like any other family from Reedsville. You go to church every Sunday. What denomination? Southern Baptist, you know, the, the crazy kind. Speaking in tongues? No, we didn't speak in tongues. We just hate, everything was a sin and you were going to hell for yeah, it. Yeah, sure. Um, Without confession. With, yeah, there was no, like, you just got ridiculed <laughs> for everything you did. Dancing, singing, oh, that's the devil, you're going to hell. Um, anything secular was was very much... Hellfire is is where you, what awaits you. Well, yeah, and there's a big moment on this album where you talk about for sure making a decision to leave the church. In oh, a way, for sure, and having to tell people about well, it. Well, it was one of those things where you know I always joke that there's around the age of twelve or thirteen, I learned there was one thing that the Southern Baptist Church hated more than gay people and abortions, and that's questions. Uh, they hated it, especially when those questions came in the form of like a twelve-year-old smart-ass yeah, smart version. I looked exactly like I did; had the hair combed over, like I had the little clip-on tie. And I came in after like an, an extremely informative science class, 
and just started asking these questions that like the Sunday school teacher was not prepared for. And so at the end of it, they basically were just like, they went and talked to my dad right. and told yeah, that, him that I was asking too many questions. And that's and, in the album. You talk oh, about this oh, one, on the album. 100%. And how he responded and all well, that stuff. He pulled us out of the church. Right. You know, I, like the one thing I can t- say for my dad is like once they started questioning his parenting and once they started questioning like the fact that I couldn't ask questions, they basically just wanted me to shut up. And so once they did that, we got pulled from the church. That's and incredible, man. It was... Uh, that speaks to. Were you close with your parents? Then? Yeah, I'm still. I still am. Both of my right. parents are still alive, and, and so were you close with them? As I mean, when the in these, but is that that feels like a dad who really stood up for his kid. But I'm sure there was tension around. My parents are extremely supportive people. Um, they are. They don't necessarily understand what it blows my dad's mind that people pay money to hear me talk, basically, or, or give my opinion on things. It it flabbergasts him. Um, but they've always been very. They're on my side, whether I'm wrong or right. And when we get home in the privacy of our home, they'll they'll dig into me and be like, "You're a fuck up, like you're messing up." But they'll never in public. They're they're it's a unified front. Yeah, and they man, and they awesome. were and they were awesome. Like in, it was one of those things where I went to a very small school and they tried to teach everything one way. And so a lot of times, once you got to the age of like eleventh, twelfth grade, you'd have students who were smarter than your teachers. Yes, yeah, sure. Just it yes. happened. Um, and so we would start asking questions that the teachers couldn't ask. And so it made a lot of us like pretty cocky. So we just, we would talk, we would talk down to the teachers that's and we terrible, get, dude. That's and, terrible. and yeah. we get in trouble for it. And my mom would always be like, it's not his fault. That, like, right. Get better teachers. Get, like, it's not his fault that like, they're not being able to challenge him anymore. And there's more kids that they're not being able to challenge. So, uh, my mom would come in and just, my mom and her prom was a, a, a real force of nature. I, and I, so you take after her in oh, certain ways. I get any kind of outgoing extrovert qualities Determination from her. Determination. For all sure. That she good. was a, she was a, like I said, my mom, she's been sick the last few years, but I always tell my wife, I was like, if you could have met my mom like circa 99, my mom, it was hellfire. Like right. you, That's you did awesome. not cross that woman. She was just, she was scary, like really scary. But like in, in like now looking back at it, like in the best possible ways. And so you were starting to say before we got off on the church thing. So church is important. So music and church. Music and so church. How did music start? You're you're an athlete and you're doing all this stuff. Where does rock and roll take over? Rock or begin and roll, to take over. Music didn't start happening for me. I started writing really shitty poetry in col- freshman year in college. Where'd you go? Uh, NC State University. Right. Um, so that's uh, that's where my love of. I used to just pull for the winning teams. I used to pull for like Carolina, UNC, and then when I went to state, uh, all allegiance off. It was. You know, you dance with the one that brought you. You know, if you're going to state, I'm a I'm a lifelong, good or bad, mostly bad, forever state fan. When I got to state, uh, I was starting to – I've always been fascinated by words. I've always been fascinated by how words go together and how they can make – certain strings of words can make people feel different emotions. Um, and so I started attempting what would be shitty poetry at this point, but, like, they were songs. And then a buddy of mine played guitar and – so he'd play guitar and I'd sing these songs, these just horrible, horrible. What were you listening to then, BJ? Man, I'd say 18 or 19-year-old me uh, was just getting turned on to like indie rock or what would be considered indie rock. So uh, I started falling in love with, when I turned 16, I lived in Reedsville. The nearest town that had a record store was Greensboro, North Carolina, right around Winston-Salem area. And so they had a Turtles Music, which is an independent record store run by college kids. 
and I was raised on just country music. That's what I, top like 40. Mer- at home, Merle Haggard? Or? At home, it was Merle, it was Willie, it was Waylon, Johnny Paycheck. I mean, those are good George things. George Jones. Those was, are good things to be raised on. That's a great start. That's a, when, when, when you can trace back your musical lineage to that, you're, you're on the right. Like my mom listened to just straight soul music and my dad listened to old outlaw country stuff. That's a great basis for somebody who wants to write honest music. Yes. Um, but then all through middle school, most of high school, it was just shitty top 40. Hip-hop, rock, bad stuff. Well, not bad. That's why you wear the hat sideways. That's why, I, the, the cocked hat sideways. Um, for those that can't see me, I'm, I'm wearing my hat like a 14-year-old child. <laughs> but that's fine. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's fine for a 14-year-old child. It's not fine for a 35-year-old man. Not great for 35, but um, it's okay. You pull it off. You're a rock star. Yeah, a rock star can do it. It's, it's rock fine. and roll, man. Yeah. Um, but then it got to the point where I'd start, when I got my license, I would go... And they'd say, what do you like? And so I found out that I really liked Whiskey Town was the big band from Raleigh. Right. Uh, this is pre-Ryan Adams being an asshole. Um, this is... That just was, so people, that's Ryan Adams' first band. Yeah, it was Ryan, people Ryan Adams' band when he lived in Raleigh. Yeah. Uh, and then I found that, and then I started finding Sunvolt, and I found... Wilco, and then somebody's like, "Well, if you like both those bands, you got to go back." And then it was Uncle Tupelo. I and then you go back, dude. I interviewed Jay yesterday. Oh, lucky, a uh, man. Trey, I mean, nobody gets. You know, he doesn't do a lot of hour long to this conversations. to this day. Trace is one of my top ten like deserted island records. I mean, forget about it. Like, man. like, don't get me wrong. I think that you know, I think Jeff surpassed him in the long run, in the long game. But if it was a sprint out of the Uncle Tupelo gate, Jeff, Jeff had him by. Three or four body lengths. Cause you mean Jay did. You're saying Jay, Jay did. did. Jay did. Sorry. Because that, that Trace record, that changed a lot for me. It was it, – it opened my – and then it made me dig further back. And then I found the Tupelo. And then I dug further back and I started getting the replacements. And then I, I traced it all the way back to like Graham Parsons. Right. And once I got there – Burrito started, Brothers. Yeah. I got right. – man, Chris Hillman and – it started taking me into a lot of different directions. And I started figuring out, like, you don't just have to be country. But you all can... that stuff came from country, too. Of, of course it did. And that's what I'm saying. Like, I mean, not the replacements, but all that other stuff you're talking about came from Paul Westerberg's songwriting sure. is definitely much yes. based in the American canon. Yes, totally. 100%. Um, but it's one of those things where I started re- trying to find my own voice. Like, what kind of music would I play? So I, I didn't really get into a lot of the rock stuff. I got more into the country rock stuff. And I learned that country music wasn't just banjos, fiddles, and acoustic guitars. You could plug in, uh, you could plug an SG in and and rock. Yeah, it was and just this is I love this because it's clear to me that J the J for our influence is still there deep in you. I named my band after Wilco, but early on, you know that J for R was it, man. Yeah, I mean for for me, uh, I'm still more J for R than J. I, Jeff Tweedy is one of the great artists, but for me, every Sunvolt album has something on it. Like Methamphetamine came out in 2007, and that's yeah. one of I think that's like an all time great song, you know. And and uh, and I think his new album is like his best. Have you heard the new album Union? I haven't listened to it yet. It's gonna blow you away. As Good. a songwriter, you're gonna. Love I need it. to listen. To, uh, man, his songwriting has always been there. It was just, I think, for me, especially when you, there's an artist, you know, who's been doing this 20 plus years, the growth for me was what kind of slowed down. Like it seems like Tweety's always evolving into this new version of himself. Yes. For records, uh, and and Jay has just kind of always been steadfast and true in what he does, and you know the new record. Well, it's a question of deepening or expanding, and I to me it's true. a question of deepening or expanding, and like because I think you're deepening. I don't think for me when I listen to your records, 
you're working in the same well you've been trying to perfect the form of this thing you're doing right you finally did it on this album for sure but it feels like a deepening it feels like somebody who understand had an idea and is this is what i get anyways like you had an idea of what american aquarium was supposed to be and you kept chipping away to get to this song sound singing feeling of a record and you finally got there on things change now the next one may be totally different but this all feels like evolution and deepening as opposed to you going well on this one we're going to bring out just mandolins Do you yeah know what i mean well it, it, as, as a writer you want you want the newest record to be better than your last you yes. want your next record to be better than the current one um and so like i think it's that kind of pressure that you put on yourself that kind of either makes the great ones great or you fold and you just become just another yes you know, speed bump in the annals of history. Um, I like to think that my writing has gotten better. Like there's plenty of guys that peaked on their first record and then everything else has been just for me. Like I'll listen to a writer and be like, wow, that first record was really great. And they had their whole life to write it. And then once they had to get on that timeline of every year and a half producing something great, they couldn't live up to there. Yeah, that's totally you know, true. That happens. And I like to think that I'm the opposite. You what know, were your I'll, ambitions when you started? So you're there in college you start listening to all this music. You're building your palate up by yeah. learning all this shit. Yeah, I became a historian of of everything that came before me in the alt country, Americana, country rock genres. Like I became that guy. I when re- college this or is right college, after this college. Is, this is probably eighteen to twenty four. Are I you just, in a band then? I, I I'm playing. American Aquarium didn't start playing as American Aquarium until I was 20, 20, 21. So yes and no. The beginning parts. It's it's like reading a history book and then deciding you want to go out and like start a, a conquest of something. <laughs> yes. You know, it's like, oh, if he could do it, you know. You know, what does Alexander the Great have that yeah, I didn't sure. have? You know, I can go out and do this too. Um, it's it's one of those things where around twenty is when we started the very, very earliest formations of the band. And and by earliest formations, and I'm calling us a band in the loosest sense of the world. Like we were basically owner operators. Like, oh, you play bass, you play drums, you play guitar. Let's book a gig for a Friday night and invite all our friends out for dollar beers. And would you do a rehearsal? One? No, oh, right. I've had, I've maybe had five rehearsals in the last 15 years. We don't rehearse. Uh, if somebody wants to, if somebody new joins the band, I send them a live recording of the last show we played and they show up and play it. We uh, don't, at the gig? At the gig. At Soundcheck, you'll run through a song or two? Uh, if, if, if we have enough time. Like my drummer right now, the drummer we have on this tour, this is his third show, and he flew in. Right, because your drummer got sick, right? Yeah, and I, gave, I basically gave him 30 songs. The new guy. The new guy. I said, learn these 30 songs and meet us, you know, in New Orleans in a month. And he showed up and nailed the gig. And so I was like, meet us in Knoxville in a month, and we'll continue doing this. And it's, it's weird because we've, just, we've always been a road band. We've always been a band that really cut our teeth – most of the first eight years of our band, we were playing 300 shows a year. So there's no, there's no one, there's no time for rehearsal. Two, it's every night's a rehearsal. Every night is, is, is tightening that thing up to where you get to something like the live record. That band you heard on the live record, we'd been playing together at that point for eight years, every year, 250, 300 shows a year. Sure. You're hearing a fine old machine on that live record. It, it, you're hearing a band that, like, it's second name. There's no thought put behind it. Of course. It's, it's we get on stage and that's what organically happens and it was a beautiful time. Um, well, so so you you're you start loosely having this band, 
you're writing the songs, and are you making a decision then? I'm gonna make rock and roll my life. Do you tell your parents that? Like I, what? I, I didn't. Think what did they thought you were gonna be doing at college? Like where did they think you were gonna? I was supposed to go to law school. Right. That was that was the earliest. Um, I you was, would have been a good lawyer. I was a bright kid. Right. Uh, I, and by bright, I mean I was really good at taking standardized tests. Um, there, I've met some brilliant people that didn't have the grades that I had, and then I've met some kids that had the grades I had that were absolute dunces. Um, I was a good mix. I, I, I had a good head on my shoulders, but I was really good at the current education system of study this for a night and regurgitate it tomorrow sure. and on to the next level. Very much video game. Like, you know, here's your boss. Yeah. Beat it and then on to the next one. Um, and so I did that all through high school and I took a lot of town identification stuff through Duke University and law school was where my calling, I, I wanted to be a law. It's a weird thing for a kid. Most kids want to be firefighters and astronauts and superheroes. From the time I was in like the third or fourth grade, I was telling people I was going to be a lawyer. Really? I, I, I knew I was going to be a lawyer. Yeah. Um, and so I went to school. Uh, when I went to college, I was a double major in political science and history. Um, every... Every ambition was law school, and then did you do well in school at the beginning? I did okay. Yeah, right. it was. It, but music sidetracked everything. That's what I'm wondering about. Once the guitar entered in, I found something that piqued my interest as much as law had my entire life, or school had my entire life. Like nothing else mattered once I found these records, and once I was able to sit in my room and just like put headphones on, and it, it's escapism. It was. It took me to a place that I'd never been before. Yes. You know, in Reedsville, North Carolina, you don't really get, like, the cream of the crop indie rock records. But when you're living in an actual cultural epicenter of the state. Of course, yes. I was able to go to multiple independent music stores and really start harvesting this record collection and thinking outside of just what Top 40 Rock was. And so, well, sure, you'd hear uh, um, Westerberg sing about Alex Chilton, and then you go get a big star record, uh, and then... I was that guy. Right, I, and I was, then you're like, go from the big star. Then you understand, well, wait, what? Are the, this This is a fusion of a whole bunch of stuff. I man, Now I have to understand... I went whole beautiful mind on it, man. I was like, literally, I had these things up on the wall, and I was like, if I like this, and then I'd go back and read like a No Depression article from like 97. Yeah, and suddenly like, you're listening to Buffalo Springfield. Yeah, and then they mentioned this record, I'm like, well, I gotta go check... So then... And this is before, like, everybody was just downloading and before Spotify. And I was literally going to the record store. I'm like, I read about this record and this. Like, do you have anything? And they would, I'd special order. Like, Love that I, did, I did so much, like, just nerding out. And I'd get the record, and I might not get it, but I'd put it on a shelf, and then I'd come back a month later, and it would change my life. And that was, that was my 20s, was just finding things that moved me and trying to replicate them. Did you get Dylan and Springsteen then, or did oh, you wait? Oh, Dylan was that and Springsteen later? were no, they were they were early. Dylan and Springsteen, like Blood on the Tracks, is my is my Dylan record. That's just that's the one that punched me in the face. Yeah, and I went back and like the early folkier stuff was great. Uh, Times Era Change is another big one for me, just because of how important it was to society, not just as a singer songwriter, but just when he made that record. Yes. The 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 cultural impact of that record's huge. But Blood on the Tracks was the one that was like, oh man, it's that's what I want to do. Yeah. And with Springsteen it was that way with Born to Run. I know that's a cliche. No. But that was, you know, that's eight songs of just power. That's that's well it's also somebody I have a question here which was about the Born to Run. I said when I uh about your ambitions and like when I've talked to you, I felt like you must understand where Bruce was when he was making Born to Run in Darkness, like that determination, that razor focus. Because that record is him throwing down the gauntlet. Born to Run is him being like, 
I want to be the greatest. I want to make the yeah. greatest album Ever. of all time. Yeah. And that's like a huge, you know, most people are so scared to try. Yeah. That you're not scared to try. Most people would look at a kid like Springsteen, who is like, I'm going to make the best record of ever all made. time. And they seem crazy. They'd be like, You're an insane person. And then fast forward 40 years, you're like, It's one of the best records of all time. Right. Like, he did it. He did it. And it's one of those things where, if I can say, I, I've read the book, uh, I've seen him live on Broadway. Yeah, I did both like, those things. Too. I've, I've fully immersed myself. I, I feel like I'm a, a minor. Uh, uh, historian on the boss and especially for somebody my age i think it's weird but uh one thing i've learned that me and him have in common i think is just don't back us against a wall do not put us in a corner um because my first instinct is the minute enough people start putting me in that corner and doubting me is the minute that i just i come out swinging and i want like again it goes back to that that oh you don't think i can do this oh that's just that's 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 gasoline on a fire well let's talk about that because you know, Bruce had that gap, that problem with the man with Mike Appel. Uh, he wrote all those songs about that time. You know, that finally came out on that extended darkness thing, including some songs that are just incredible. But you really did have like a tumultuous, heartbreaking situation with your band, and yeah, and it could have made you second guess this whole thing. So, talk. Can you just talk about like what? Because you said you were kind of an asshole. They were, but. And, and the, the gossipy part, I don't, I don't care about like sort of what exactly the arguments were, but I'm interested in when it happened, when they were like, we're done with this crazy dream of yours, dude. Yeah. And that's basically what it was. It was, they started realizing like, it's not going anywhere. We've, we've given you eight years of our life and we're still spinning circles, playing tiny clubs, you know, barely getting month to month. Like, you know, you're n- if you were a better person, maybe we'd stick around. But like, what are we fighting so hard for? You're an asshole. You and, know? and how were you an asshole? Oh, uh, you gotta think. When they quit the band, I, I I had two years of sobriety under my belt. But they also that also means they had to endure six years yes. of of drunken me, which I'll be the first to admit was a terrible human being. I, I selfish, like any addict. Like I didn't care about right. anything except for me. And when I got drunk, and I was able to kind of mask like mask that during the day. But once I got drunk and you know jacked up on amphetamines, like yeah. I didn't, I would be very open about how I didn't give a shit about you and how you're just a drummer, you're replaceable, Ugh. and I was just a bad person to be around, especially when I didn't have anything like a record to back it up. You know, like I feel like some people get a pass for being an asshole just because they're so wildly talented. I didn't have anything. You hadn't put it down. I yet hadn't in put the way it down yet. Like undeniable. Like, like I was just kind of like this this asshole with no reason to be an asshole. So Which what, is the worst type of human being? So how did you? It's not great. How did you? It's not. <laughs> how how did you take it though when they when they said it and you realized they were real about it? I was devastated. It was done. I was devastated. Like being in a band is just like anybody would think being in a band is. It's you and your friends against the world, and no matter how fucked up versions of each other you are, you're still one unit and you're fighting for each other. And, and you're the, I'm the only one that can talk shit about him. You can't, you're outside of our circle. You can't talk shit about him. And when all those guys left, I watched all of my defense, all of my walls, all of my, my, my creative backbone walk out the door. Like, and not, they weren't just quitting me. They were quitting my dream. They were quitting this thing, this thing that's bigger than me. And also you had basically said to them, I don't need you. And they were like, really? Yeah. Right? I mean, they, they were called my bluff. It. They did. They, they called your, you were like, I don't need this. You guys are, you're a guitar player. I'm the songwriter and the singer. A hundred percent. 
And then they were like, well, okay, see ya. Yeah, after and, after a while, I think I just told them, I, I, I diminished their importance enough in their minds to where they're like, well, fuck this guy. And so it was it was almost like a coup. It was it was all the same day. We were sitting in a boardroom discussing the rest of the year, the next year. What year is this? This is 2000, February of 2017. Uh, we're sitting at a hotel, like, conference room. Our manager had flown in. We were going to discuss the next year like and, and, and game plan it. And they all came in one at a time, and we're like, we all quit. And for most people, like, you know, I made the best record of my career after everybody quit. It's like if Springsteen had made Born to Run after the E Street Band just walked out on him. I was like, fuck you, man. Go do it yourself. Right. Um, so, but what happened? So they all leave. Are you left there with your manager? Did your manager quit on you, too? My manager quit moment? on me, too. They, in that moment, in he that, quit on you, yeah, too? Yeah. He said there's nothing to manage anymore, so... I'm, I, Did they all plan that together? Do you think? I don't know. Uh, I don't think the management and everything walked away at the same time. But um, but essentially, they all left you. I didn't realize same that. day, same day. It this, was the first that day. The manager said, "I'm done too." In the in the same meeting, we're all sitting around a circle, and everyone quit that day. I, what did you fucking do, man? That not, like literally take me through the next forty. I had hours. to get on stage with them two hours later and play our last two shows. So together. they said, "We'll play these two gigs and yeah, we're done." Yeah. <laughs> did you say anything to them that night? I, I, did you go to a meeting? What do you say? What do you say to somebody like that? Like it's, I realized they were very serious. I realized there was no talking them out of it. And my ego at the time wouldn't have allowed me to talk them out of it. Right. My ego, at the, now I would have tried to, to, to repair it as much as possible. Yeah, and be like, okay, you're walking away. Like, does, can we can we still maintain a friendship? Yeah. Like at that point in time, it was just like you're walking away from me. Cool. I'm right. good. I, like right. I, I, put, I tried to play it cool, like cool man, awesome. Thanks guys. Thank right. you. Like y'all enjoy everything else. I got it from here, and I had probably two weeks of just wallowing in self pity. Who'd you, did you tell? Did you, it was just you tell my, your. It was my new wife. So you told your wife that night or whatever. Yeah, and she was like, "What are you gonna do?" I was like, "I have absolutely no idea." Like we had shows on the books. Like I didn't. And know, no manager. No manager. No, a record deal or no deal. No record deal. I had nothing. I didn't know what. Do you have the songs? Had you written the songs yet? No, not yet. I had nothing. And and you got to think this is a year and a half after Wolves came out. So like I'm expected to have this record ready for people to hear soon. I have nothing written for it. My band just quit. My management just quit. Everything. The only person that stayed with me was my booking agent. My booking agent always had faith because he's like, "You'll figure it out." And my wife, her exact words were, you'll figure it out. And I had probably two weeks of just being the alt-country Eeyore, just kind of walking around my house, being like, woe is me. What? And finally, my wife literally sat me down and said, you can either bitch about it or you can change it. Awesome. She's like, I'm not going to sit here and hear you feel sorry for yourself anymore. You can either go get a straight job or figure out how to work. And she was with you if you got a straight job. She, she's my, my wife is, you know, whatever. She knows that. I'm one of those guys, if I put my mind to something, I feel extremely confident that I'll figure out how to do it and then excel at it. Like, that's just, that's, I pride myself in that. That's just, you, when you get to be 35, you know your strengths and your weaknesses. And one of my strengths is if I, if, if I apply myself at all to something, I'm going to do it. So you, you said, so she says that to you. And I said, well, I need time to build this thing back up. And so what I did was I booked a, one of the most ambitious things I've ever done. I did the Great 48 Tour which I booked one show in all 48 states for that summer. Uh, solo acoustic? Solo acoustic. Me, her, and our dog. I was like, I want to see the entire country. I want to be re-inspired. Wow. 
And I was like, I also want to put up and let all of our fans know I'm still going to do something. Did you know that some gigs would be 500 people and some would be like four people? And 100%. You know, you'd walk into some rooms and it would be like, oh, I knew I was going to walk into North Dakota that's and, what I'm and just get just my, eat it. My, my, just e- eat it. my ego was going to get pummeled. I was going to walk into North Dakota, a state that I'd never been in, and I was going to play in front of, I think, 17 people right. in a 300-person club That's so on, sick. A, on a Tuesday night. And I was just like, I'm going to own those 17 people, though. They're going to be fans for life after they see me play. And these acoustic shows were like where I started what has become now like very popular at my acoustic shows. I was, It was like t- this right here. Right. It was me and you, and I was telling you secrets that nobody should ever tell the public and like these people were like paying to watch me just whip myself, basically. And you would do it. And it was so cathartic to get like all of these emotions and talk about like how shitty of a person I am and like why how did am you I afford ba- that even to do that? It was one of those things where like the shows were paying for themselves. Like it was just me and my wife. Right. Overheads minimal. You were in a van? I was in a rental car. I rented a car. You rented a car from Avis and put thirty three thousand. Two guitars in the car. Two guitars, two guitars? some t shirts to sell at merch, and that's it. I put thirty three thousand miles on a rental car that summer. That's so sick. I played sixty four shows in sixty seven days. And we writing while you were going? No, not at all. No, no. So no, you weren't writing. No. So this is this is summer of two thousand seventeen. Elections already happened. Um, I'm going around to every. Because not only you got to think everybody quit. The last week of January, first week of February, we also had a president get inaugurated that same a week prior. Yeah, which is all on the record. So like, all on the like it's it's a it's a cataclysmic change. Basically, me, I've my band has given up on me. I've started to doubt my country. I've started to doubt what the fuck am I going to do? What the, I, me and my wife are talking about bringing kids in this world. What are we going to do? And so I went around, and not only did I have to get faith back in myself and faith back into my songwriting, I had to get faith back in like the people I was playing for. Because I know for a fact, as a Americana musician, half my crowd feels one way, half my crowd feels the other way. And so I went out on this tour every state and asked people, who'd you vote for? Why'd you vote for? Let's talk about it openly. We're not supposed to talk about this. Let's have a discussion. Not an argument, a discussion. I respect your opinion Tell me what you t- do this after the show, after the show. And I'd stand in line and there'd be a hundred people that wanted to tell me their opinions. And I would just like a sponge. I would just take it in. And then as soon as I got done, uh, I'd hired a band before I went on this acoustic tour. So you got to think, here we go. Uh, February, beginning of February, everybody quits. I start this solo tour in April. Yeah. It runs all the way to June. The new band I hired before the solo tour, have them learning all this material over the three months I'm gone. As soon as the solo tour ends, I'm off a week, and then we start a full-blown band tour. Because in my head, I was like, I can't, my fans have to know that this thing's going to keep going. Like, I can't just take two years off and come back. I have to reestablish faith in the bass, you know. And so we went out, and the new band was just, I knew that I had to have a band that was better than my last band. You can't come out 80% when people are used to 100%. I had to come out with 140%. Sure. And so over that time, we, 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 we nailed down a really, really great band, the band I'm touring with now. And, uh, and we came out and people showed up because they either believed in me, they doubted it and just wanted to see how bad I was going to fail. Or there were people that showed up that didn't know how to feel. It's like, well, I've never seen another version of this band. Like, what are we going to get? And we came out every night and just 
But you had always written all the songs yourself. I've, I've written every song yourself. The, yeah, the whole time. So there was a lot of people, a subset of our fan base that were like, "I'm following BJ no matter what." Like, right. it can be him and acoustic guitar. It can be him and an orchestra. It's still American Aquarium as long as he's singing the songs. Yes. But of course, in your own head, you're like, "Well, am I going to be accepted when I've told the story that we're a band and we've kind of been a band?" When do you write the songs, though? I wrote the songs after that first band tour. Your wife gets pregnant. My wife gets pregnant. You know pregnant. you have a daughter coming. I got a she's daughter a real coming. character on the album. Yeah. She's sort of, you feel, I mean, you just say it directly, but it's also throughout the whole thing. So me and my wife conceived in July. Me and the band did a full tour in July and August. I got off the road in August and wrote that entire record. And then booked studio time in December. So you wrote that record in August, September, October? It took me less than two weeks to write that record. That's crazy. Yeah, I just sat down and... And took everything from the last, the six months prior, from the time, the election, banqueting, to the end of that tour, and spit it all out. And did you know, I have a body of songs here that's better than any I'd had before. Hands down, like, and when I played them for the new band, they were just like, whoa. Like, I played them like one day at a time. Yes. And they were just like, that's the best thing you've ever written. And they, they have no reason to lie to me. They're like, the new band, it's, it's pretty transparent. Like, right. they're... They'll tell me if something sucks. They're not afraid to. No, I mean, that's a great song. You've told me the story about how you just went in and put it down and yeah. sort of like played it in the studio and that was that. Yeah. The studio version you hear is me walking. Like we were playing like a faster, upbeat, full band version of it. And the producer, John Fulbright, was just like, have you ever tried this slow down and acoustic? And I was like, no. And he went in there and he made the engineer hit record. And so what you're hearing on the record is me, the first time I ever tried to play it slow, and then if you listen to it, we left it on the record. You can hear me sit the guitar down on the stool, walk out, close the door, and ask, was that okay? Yeah. And that's on the record. Like, it was it was just like this moment of like, and I walked in, and everybody's like, like straight face, like, holy shit. Like, that, we don't have to do anything else to yeah, it. Yeah, no, it's an incredible moment on the thing. So you played them the songs. You knew it was the real deal. And then you had to go get it in the recording studio. But going back to this a- ambition thing, and I guess this happened with the band. You sort of spoke to it. I wrote it down to ask you, though, which is I find that for people who are that focused sometimes, it is hard to deal with people who treat the whole thing more as like a job. Yeah. Have you gotten better at it? I've gotten better at it. I, I think I have. Realistically, I'm still... I'm, you're trying to like change the world with your music. I micromanage my business a lot, you know. And my manager, uh, I have a new manager, and she's incredible um but i'm very much hands-on like i i'm tagged in every email every morning i'm still our tour manager i advance all the shows i do the driving like it's my band it's my it's my baby and i'm I'm so afraid of taking my hand off of every little piece because i'm afraid that if i take it off if anything happens i wouldn't be able to forgive myself because i took my hand off of it and so like i'm i'm very much very into it and my and my band luckily my band now under like there's a hierarchy to bands, and a lot of times that hierarchy gets blurred when you start the band together. When everybody starts the band, even if it's one guy's vision, like my guys who had been there for eight years, the last version of the band, it started feeling like like that hierarchy was blurred. There wasn't a guy in charge, and they felt like if and and any time that happens, everybody feels that like they have free reign to do whatever the hell they want to. And so with this new band, luckily, they came into a situation that had already existed before them. So it was a lot easier to implement, like, okay, this is my band. Right. Um, you're getting paid this much a show. I expect this from you. Um, 
And that but, probably but, allows you all to get along, actually, because there's no question about... There's not one question. And, and and this version of the band has been so great just because... Do they still feel free to collaborate if a like, guitar player has an idea? 100%. Or the bass player's like, hey, I think we could go here to the bridge. Are you open to that stuff? I'm very open. So when I bring songs to the table, I'm bringing these skeletal versions. I'm bringing, you know, folk songs. I'm bringing three or four chords. Right. And I'll, I'll let the band have full reign That's over great. the arrangement of, right. of building this thing up. And I tell them, like... If there's something I'm just adamant against, like this does not feel like where the song should go, I speak up. But I, I'm not a bass player. Right. I'm not going to write your bass parts. I'm not a drummer. I'm not going to tell you how to play drums. Like, right. You'll tell you what you'll say what feels right. Exactly. I'll tell them what, like if I feel like it serves the song or if it doesn't serve the song. And so it's been really great because this version of the band, like, it, it it's working like it's supposed to work. And, and and all the childish shit is, has been put to the side, and these guys know that like I'm showing up for three weeks of work. And when the reviews came out, BJ and you know Rolling Stone, it was great for me because I heard the record, and I mean I told you before it was like written about it. I was like, dude, you did it. I was so happy. Ah, thanks, man. As you remember, but when when the reviews started coming out, and they all talked about right away, you know how great this record was. What did that feel like to you? Did you allow yourself to take a moment and sort of... Validation. Drink it in. You know, everybody who writes a record thinks it's the best record that's came out that year. You know, I wrote plenty of mediocre records that I thought in the time I was writing it, it was going to change the world. And I think that if you're not creating art that you think is going to change the world, you should just get out of and it. And so when this one ended up on year-end best list and stuff, it mattered Yeah, it you. mattered to me. And like, don't get me wrong, a lot of that stuff just feather in the cap, you know, but it's nice to have a feather in the cap every now and then. Do you feel pressure for the next record? Of course, I've, I feel pressure for every record. When do you start writing it? I've already, I've already got most of it written. We go in the studio in August and cut it. Um, it's, it's watching those reviews come in and watching magazines and publications that I have idolized. Yeah. Since I learned about their existence. Come out and like, you know, Rolling Stone named it one of the top 10 records of the year. Yeah. American Songwriter, top 10 records of the year. Paste, uh, you know, No Depression. As a songwriter who who feels like I'm writing good songs, for somebody else who yes. you look up to to come out and say, you're correct in feeling this way, you are writing great songs, you know, it's it's a good feeling. And, and has your audience grown? Exponentially. It's It's been really neat to watch, you know, our fan base go from like 200 people in like just a little shitty punk rock club to a thousand people in a theater. Yes. And you'll have people come up and are like, I kind of dismissed your band before this record. And then I found this record and then I went back and then it, the aha moment was this record for people. That's fantastic. And then once they started digging back, they were able to kind of peel away some of those bad songs or mediocre they songs. bad songs. It's just, you know, they weren't, they weren't all on the level of, you know, they weren't all fastballs, man. Jacksonville. Yeah. Jacksonville to this day is one of my favorite songs I've written. Of course, it's a it's such a, a th- an anthemic. I think that was the first song of yours that really got me. Um, and uh, so you're recording in August. August, yeah. When do you hope to have that out? April 2020. Have you talked to anyone in the band, the old band? No. Uh, Did so, anyone say congratulations? Uh, so me and my old pedal steel player has stayed relatively close. Um, every time I go through, he, he now plays pedal steel for Josh Headley. Yeah. Um, he was one of the only ones that quit the band that had a, a purpose in mind. He quit the, he didn't quit the band out of animosity. He quit the band because his time with the band had come to a close. 
he was getting married. He wanted to move to Nashville. Uh, he wanted to be a session guy. He wanted to. He sure. didn't want to tour. But but you wrote that song, which is sort of a peace offering in a way, or it's it is sort it's of my a attempt. Song. It's my attempt. It's, at a, a, it's a way offering. to sort of say, look, I'll never forget that we tried to do something magical together. And I'm wondering if you've heard whether they heard it or not. There's three of the guys I haven't spoke to since they left. Right. Uh, two of the guys I've stayed in touch with, and and they've all been really great. They've been like, congratulations. I'm glad to see that like. You took this and and turned it into something. You, you took negative thing and used that negative energy and made it into well, a positive. I momentum. hope that the forgiveness all around finally happens because uh, I think it'd be just a nice chapter if you guys could all just figure out how to say like, "Hey, I would love that." And and I try. You know, I go out of my way. Like if I if I see that one of the old guys is doing like a, you know, like a fundraiser or or, or needing something, like I'll chip in. Right. And, and just that's cool. Try to take the always trying to take the high road, um, w- whether or not I want to or not. Sometimes it's, you know, I, I would love to be at a point where I could go get coffee with every single one of them one day. Well, I, I'm wishing that for you too. Hey, if people want to find you, you're on social media. You're on Twitter and Instagram. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, wherever you under what, your own name. Uh, yeah, I'm under it's under American Aquarium, and then Twitter and Facebook. I'm on. BJ, I got BJ Barm as well. Great. And so, folks, you can find BJ there. You can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter or on the gram. You can email me at the moment bk at gmail.com. Uh, this album is really spectacular. Go get it. Go listen to the live album and go see American Aquarium on tour because BJ won't stop until he has rocked every single person. True story. In the room. <laughs> Thanks, dude. Thanks, dude. We'll see you.